Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 93, Tess Neal, Psychological Assessments in Legal Contexts. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Tess Neal. Tess is an assistant professor of psychology at Arizona State's School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, where she directs the Clinical and Legal Judgment Lab. Tess is also a founding faculty member of Arizona State's program on law and behavioral science. She teaches classes on correctional and forensic psychology. Our podcast today features Tess's new article, Psychological Assessments in Legal Contexts, which is co-authored with Chris Lebogan, Michael Sachs, David Fagman, and Kurt Geisinger. It was published in the journal Psychological Science in the Public Interest. In it, Tess discusses a comprehensive survey of the various psychological assessment tests that are used in legal proceedings. In the first part of the article, she looks at these tests and examines their validity and their acceptance among psychologists. Then in the second part, she examines legal challenges to them. All in all, Tess's article offers a revealing perspective on Daubert in operation. Just how effective is Daubert in screening out junk psychology from the courtroom? My interview with Tess finds out. Tess, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much. Your article deals with the use of psychological assessment tests in court. To start us off, can you tell us what you mean by a psychological assessment test and perhaps offer an example? Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you that don't know that much about forensic clinical psychology, there's something relevant that all of these people have in common. Brendan Dassey of Netflix's Making a Murderer, Andrea Yates, a mother of five who confessed to drowning all of her children in their bathtub, Mike Tyson, a professional boxer who held the World Heavyweight Championship, a Hollywood celebrities Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, and their six children, and James Holmes, a shooter responsible for killing 12 people and injuring 70 others at a movie theater in Colorado. Each of these people became involved in a legal issue with a psychological question at its core, and each of these people were involved in a different kind of legal case, but all of them rested at least in part on a psychological question or feature for which the legal system often turns to mental health professionals for help. Of these people, some of the examples include the types of questions like civil tort for emotional injury, competence to stand trial, child custody, and insanity. So each year, mental health professionals do this kind of work to help judges and courts make their decisions. And there are hundreds of thousands of these kinds of assessments, probably we estimate every year, that are conducted that profoundly affect people's lives. In the first part of your article, you do an exhaustive survey of psychological assessment tests that are used in legal cases, and you look at their validity. How did you go about doing this? Yeah, so we, we wanted to look at the particular kinds of tools that psychologists use in these kinds of assessments. And first, we wanted to know kind of an earlier study in this line of studies, I guess. We wanted to know how common it was that psychologists were using 
actually validated test things where there was some kind of science behind them versus just using a intuitive gut clinical interview where they just question the person and then write a report. And we found out from that earlier study that about 75% of psychologists use some kind of test. The other 25% use some kind of gut instinct. And there was an age correlation there. So older psychologists who had been around longer were more likely to use the kind of more gut clinical intuition. And the younger psychologists were more likely to use a tool. So then for this project, we were really curious about the types of tools psychologists were using and what the scientific underpinnings look like for those tools. So we did a pretty exhaustive deep dive, first to find out what tests people were using, and then the scientific validity of each of those. So to find out what they were using, we did a pretty comprehensive look in the literature at 22 or 23 surveys of mental health professionals who work in forensic settings across time. I think the earliest one was maybe in the 1970s. So we had a pretty nice set of studies of what tools psychologists use in these kinds of settings. And we pulled from all of those names of all the different tools. And we came up with a list of 364 different psychological assessment tools that psychologists use or agree with each other that they are appropriate for use in legal settings. And these are things that measure psychological constructs like somebody's intelligence or somebody's personality or what kind of diagnosis somebody might have and these sorts of things. So of that list of 364, we then took a deep dive into each one of them to kind of rate their scientific properties. And to do this, you used authorities like the Mental Measurements Yearbook. I was sort of fascinated by it. Can you tell me more about the Mental Measurements Yearbook? Is it something that's accessible to attorneys and laypersons, at least with respect to the field of psychology, or are they really for specialists in the field? Absolutely. So the purpose of the Mental Measurements Yearbook, it's been around actually since 1938. It was founded by a psychologist named Oscar Burroughs at the Burroughs Center for Testing. It's affiliated with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And they're a nonprofit, and they were established specifically for this purpose, to offer professional, independent, candidly critical reviews of commercially available tests. And their driving purpose, their mission, is to hold test publishers accountable for their claims. And so these reviews are available to anybody. They're definitely available in the field of psychology. But their purpose is kind of to, to help the public and attorneys and the courts and whatever, anybody who has a, a vested interest in understanding the scientific validity of a tool to have access to information about it. The Mental Measurements Yearbook is available in a few different ways. The kind of historic way that they published is once every few years, they would come out with a bound volume and they just kept updating this volume. And now I think they're on edition 20 or something like this. And those are available as a reference series in libraries, but they're also online. So you can get any of these test reviews. You can just go on their website, test reviews online and purchase individually the reviews of a test. And I, I think right now the a la carte reviews are something like $15. So they're fairly affordable. And each, each test comes with two independent reviews some from two different people in the field. And they kind of have a standard format. So they're set up with here's basic information about the test. Who's the publisher? How much does it cost? What does the administration manual say about what kind of training you need to have before you can do this? These sorts of things. And then they have sections on the validity of the tool, the reliability of the tool, what populations are appropriate for use with the tool, where the science has been done on it. And then they have at the end, each reviewer gets a chance to put their opinion 
on it. So they get to say, okay, here's the facts about the validity indices, the reliability indices, and so forth. And then they pull it all together at the end. And they say, here's my take on whether I think this is a pretty solid tool or whether I think there's room for improvement and that sort of thing. So as a person reading the reviews, you get to read both reviews, two reviews of each test, and you can kind of compare and contrast the reviews. So you get they're not written by anybody affiliated with the test itself, so it has to be independent. And they are people with training in psychometrics, so they're, they're pretty well done in general. But a limitation of them is that they are a point in time. And so once it's published, the review is not going to be updated as the science evolves unless there's a new edition of the test that comes out and the test publisher wants a new review or something like that. So it kind of will be static in time. So for a scientist, we would want to make sure that people are going to the most updated literature, but it's still a great place to start. Yeah, and it sounds like a great tool for attorneys out there who are facing this kind of evidence in court. Yes. From your review, what did you conclude about the quality of the tests that make their way into legal proceedings? How are we doing with the gatekeeping? Yeah, so we had some a priori hypotheses just based on our kind of intuition about this. So we have an authorship team that's, I'm a clinical forensic psychologist by training and also a scientist by training. We have three law professors, including people who are pretty sophisticated about mental health law. And then we have Kurt Geisinger is the director of the Burroughs Center for Testing. So he's a psychometrician expert. So we kind of had an interesting team put together. And between all of us with these different perspectives, we all had the same intuitive hypothesis that there wasn't a lot of effective gatekeeping going on, but we didn't know that. So we wanted to do this study. And we did it in two parts. So the first part, we wanted to know what actually is the reliability and validity of these tools? Is there variability such that there should be gatekeeping happening. And then in the second part, we did a, a case law review to see whether or not there was gatekeeping happening. So if the things that had worse scientific properties, if those were being screened out and things with better scientific properties, if those were being screened in. So on the first part, with regard to the validity of the tools themselves, we did find variability. We tried to code these things consistent with the Daubert criteria. So we looked at things like general admissibility of the tools, whether they had been tested, what their error rates were. We tried to look at that. We kind of had to triangulate that. But with regard to empirical testing, they looked pretty good. So about 90% of them had been subjected to testing. So on that piece of the Daubert criteria or the Daubert kind of related admissibility criteria, these kind of psychological tests look good on that factor. But in other ways, there is quite a bit of variability. So we were able to clearly identify only about 67% of these tools as generally accepted in the field. And yet we know all of them were being used by at least some people. And then most critically, we found that only about 40% of the tools had generally good reviews of their psychometric and technical properties in authorities like the Mental Measurements Yearbook. So there's quite a bit of variability there. So we would hope that the things that don't have great scientific indices, that those would be screened out. Now, it seems to me that those percentages, though, are unweighted by frequency of use. Is that right? Yep. I Presumably, some tests are more popular than others. Do you have any sense of frequency or weight? Yes. And actually, in the paper, we have a table. Table 3 shows the names of the tools and also the frequency that they were used and the frequency that they were challenged. And not all the tools, just the tools that we ended up closely looking at for the second part. But it's still interesting because it does show variability. And most interesting, the number one tool that had the highest number of citations in legal cases, it's called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory or the MMPI. And this has strong science behind it. So that's good that we're seeing a tool that has pretty good indices that's the highest in use and it has a low rate of challenge. 
But we also see the tool with the second highest number of citations in cases is the Rorschach inkblot test. The Rorschach, which is a much more highly subjective, scientifically problematic tool that really a lot of authorities say does not belong in a legal setting. And yet we're seeing it's the second highest cited case in legal settings. And it does have more challenges, but definitely not as many as we might hope. So interesting, given that the inkblot test is probably the psychological test that is most known in popular culture, right? Right. Perhaps not a modern tool to be used. So let me push you along to the second part of your study where you looked at the legal challenges. And I guess you can't really blame the judges if the tests aren't actually challenged by the attorneys. So tell me what you did in this part of the study and what did you find? Yeah, absolutely. So we decided as a team of authors that there was no way that we could look at all 364 tests across all time because we wanted to actually read the cases and code some of the information about them. So we had to make some decisions about how to reduce the scope of the number of cases to read. So one decision we made was that we would only look at the previous three years of case law. So we only looked at uh, 2018, 2017, and 2016. And then another decision was instead of looking at all 364 tests, we picked 30 tests as exemplars and then searched for those. And the way we picked these 30 tests, it was not random. So we have a non-parametric test here. We picked these 30 tools to have a mix of types of referral questions for which they would be asked, so like different reasons for their use, but also we wanted variability in terms of the scientific quality. We wanted some that were good and some that were not very great. And then we also wanted variability in general acceptance, so things that were used a lot and things that weren't used that often to kind of get a, a flavor for what the pattern of admissibility challenges and use of these tools might look like. So we picked 30 of them, and then we searched Westlaw, all federal and state cases for those three years, 2016 to 2018. And we screened in, it was more than 800 cases. And then we decided at that point, because it was too many to read and code, that we wouldn't read any more than 30 cases for a given tool. So at that point, like for instance, remember I said the MMPI, we found 485 cases. We didn't read all those. We just randomly selected 30 of those. So for any tool, any of our 30 tools, we only read up to 30 cases. And that gave us a total sample size of 372 legal cases that we read. I say we, but I mean the legal scholars on our team read. So they split those up and read the cases and then coded them for a variety of factors. And what did you find when you had coded them all up? So first we were just interested kind of in the big question of how often are they cited? And then when they are, you know, when judges are citing these tests, how often is there any challenge to their admissibility, regardless of how it turns out? And we found that they weren't challenged very often. So we found the legal challenges to the assessment evidence for any reason occurred in about 5.1% of cases. And that just wasn't very much. And then with regard to some more of the details of it, we found that coded challenges to fit, challenges to validity of the tool, whether it was unhelpful or prejudicial to the jury, and then qualifications to the expert. And there were challenges on all of those grounds. Validity was the number one reason for challenge. But none of these were all that likely to succeed. So even on validity grounds, they only succeeded, I think, about two-thirds of the time. No, they failed about two-thirds of the time, and they succeeded only about one-third of the time. And then the other striking thing that I remember from the study is that you found that there didn't seem to be a correlation 
between the test quality and the likelihood of success in the challenge. That's right. And in fact, well, first we saw that some of the tests with the best scientific properties were also the most likely to be challenged. And that's probably just an artifact of the types of cases in which they're used also happen to have the highest rates of challenges. So that just might be kind of noise in the data. But for sure, those kinds of tests that we would hope, you know, they have the worst scientific properties, we hope that those would be challenged the most, and that did not show up in the data. What do you think we should make of this? Are the attorneys basically flailing? And is the result that attorneys could actually prevent a lot of these questionable tests from being admitted but don't? Are there other explanations for what's going on? Yeah, I think there's several explanations. One that I think the reason we wanted to write the paper was because I think we just wanted to highlight that there is variability in the quality of these tools. So I don't think the attorneys necessarily did anything wrong or have done anything wrong by not challenging them. Because I just think, one, there's so many psychological tests, right? So we found 364 just in our look into what we know has been used in legal settings. And the Mental Measurements Yearbook, they review something like almost 3,000 available tests. So there's a ton of tests out there. We can't possibly expect attorneys and the court to just know which of these are good and which aren't good. And so I think on the one hand, it's kind of psychologists have proliferated in their number of tools, and that's a problem in and of itself, perhaps. But then a second related issue is that I just don't think many people understand that there is a lot of variability in that proliferation, that some of that's really strong on scientific grounds and some of it isn't. And yet that information is not easily accessible at this point. So kind of the public, I think, has this perception that if they're being tested by a psychologist, that it must be a good tool. And even as a clinical psychologist, and I get all these marketing catalogs all the time, with these glossy pages of these beautiful tests that claim that they can do X and Y and Z, and that the scientific information often isn't available in these catalogs. So that the marketing, there's a kind of a big business side of this, where these tests make money for the publishers. And so even psychologists, I think, aren't aware of the variability in the quality necessarily like they should be. So we are hoping that by publishing this paper and kind of communicating it to the courts and to lawyers who might be interested in venues like this, that there might be appropriate challenges, you know, challenges when these things should be challenged. We're hoping that they are challenged more often. Yeah, I think that the article really does a lot to raise awareness, both of the problem and of the resources that attorneys might be able to use where it would help them figure out what tests to challenge and which ones not to. Final question for you. What's next for this project? Are there future directions that you and your co-authors are planning to take this work or that you'd like to see others take in the field? Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm working with another colleague. We know that this look at the test that we did here with the, the second piece, the case law piece, that it was a non-parametric. Like I said, we only looked at three years of data. We only looked at 30 tools that we kind of picked, not at random. So we wanted to get a, another estimate to inform whether or not what we've done here is really accurate. And so we, for that project, we've looked at all years of case law in Westlaw, and we haven't restricted it by type of test. So we've, we're looking at all tests. And for that one, we're not reading the cases, we're just estimating. So we've done some fancy footwork, I think, with creating the search strings in Westlaw to estimate the frequency of how often each of these tests are used, in what types of cases and what types of jurisdictions, and how often are they challenged. So that hopefully will be forthcoming relatively soon. And 
spoiler, we do find a similar rate of challenge. So we have some confidence in what we found in this paper. It's lower in the next paper or in the next project, but it's similar. The conclusion that they aren't challenged very often is similar there. And then we also, I think I'm interested in figuring out who's most likely to challenge, like what side challenges, what types of tests and when are they successful and kind of helping. I'm not necessarily interested in advocating for any particular party, but I'm kind of interested in helping make clear when these things are likely to succeed and for whom to maybe make things better for all sides. When things need to be challenged by the defense or the prosecution or whatever, if it's a tool that should be challenged, we're hoping to make that easier so that the court is better able to screen out junk when there is junk. Well, Tess, thanks for taking the time to talk about your new piece on psychological assessment tests and suggesting some new avenues for legal challenges and places where attorneys can go to learn more about these tests. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. As someone who is not a psychologist, one thing I learned from Tess's new article and this interview is that these comprehensive compilations on the validity of psychological tests exist. For judges, attorneys, or even researchers encountering this kind of evidence for the first time, or even not for the first time, these kinds of resources can prove invaluable. As for the study itself, I'm struck by the low challenge rate that tests found. On the one hand, I suppose the result shouldn't be all that surprising. You might think that as a matter of practice, there are standard psychological tests that show up in day-to-day -day litigation, and once they're established, they just become part of the landscape. Lawyers wouldn't necessarily think to challenge them repeatedly. On the other hand, Tess's results concerningly suggest little correlation between validity or acceptance in the expert community and the frequency of legal challenges. So it appears that the legal community may be somewhat asleep at the switch and needs to wake up. Fortunately, resources like the Mental Measurements Yearbook might help lawyers do just that. Finally, one possible concern I have with the study's legal survey is case publication bias. As I've argued and empirically shown in earlier work in the Journal of Legal Studies, the cases that we see in published opinions are not necessarily representative of the cases that courts see. This is particularly true in evidence law, where the action tends to be at the trial level, and written opinions on admissibility decisions are not the norm. The question then becomes, how does publication bias skew what we see in these psychological assessment cases? One probably would expect that exclusions would be more likely to appear in the published case law than admissions, since admitting evidence is usually pretty standard fare, while exclusions are a bit more dramatic and demand something of an explanation. If that's true, the problem of attorney complacency may be even worse than tests suggested. More work, though, I think is needed to flesh out this issue. In any event, Tess's paper has given academic researchers a lot to think about, and lawyers some new promising avenues of attack. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. 
The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Thanks also to the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who hosted me during the recording of this episode. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.